And I'm here today with an interview with Jen McCullough. Um, she's an author, um, and I came across her work um, as a result of reading a, uh, a post. I think it was on Medium, but I'm not quite sure. But I was just struck by kind of her story, and I wanted to, I reached out to her to kind of learn more and to share more, and I, I thought it would be relevant in terms of, especially in terms of dealing with family and trauma and kind of the stories we all, um, well, some of the stories we share in common. So, Jen, thanks for, ta thanks for taking the time to chat today. Yes, thank you. It's my pleasure. Awesome. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Uh, my background is I'm actually, uh, have been a longtime editor, All Happy Families, which is my memoir that you just mentioned that came out last August, is my first book. Uh, before that, I was a longtime editor at the Paris Review, Literary Quarterly. I was the managing editor and then the editor-at-large, and from there I was one of the early editors at Tin House, another literary quarterly. So um, this being my first foray into writing, it was something I'd been wanting to do for a long time. It was a story I'd been wanting to tell for a long time, and I'd written an essay for a, an anthology on the topic of money, which had been quite difficult to write. And as a consequence, when it appeared in the anthology, which was called Money Changes Everything, um, an editor approached me to see if I wanted to write a book and expand what was a 5,000-word essay into an entire, say, 65,000, 70,000 word book, and I, I naively said yes, which was ironic because I had always warned my own authors never to accept that kind of invitation hmm. if you have absolutely no idea what you're going to write about to expand the story that so conveniently was summed up in 5,000 words. So that is sort of how my jump uh, to the writing side of the desk happened. I'd written short pieces and personal essays my whole life. My very first job had been at Vogue magazine in the features department. And there I had written a personal essay when I was very young. I look back on it now and I can't believe those things actually got published. <laughs> <laughs> my, my idea about what success was coming out of the starting gate at age, you know, two and a half, basically. But, um, so that was, that had been my start. I had started as a writer, and then when I took the job as managing editor of the Paris Review, I had naively assumed that I would just keep writing while I did that job. And for me, that wasn't possible. There are people in this world who can be very productive editors and productive writers at the same time, but I found giving my all to the editing sort of was the way it evolved. So the so story... Sort of, go, go ahead. So the story in Money Changes Everything um, was really kind of the spark to kind of push you 
down the rabbit hole of, of kind of looking at something deeper, right? Yes, and what had happened is when I had written that piece, I had been approached by the editor of the anthology, and I had been commissioned to write a piece about something specific, which was they were getting, I mean, if I'm to sort of sum it up in a nutshell, they were getting a lot of wonderful sort of rags to riches pieces. And mine was more, not exactly a riches to rags story, but it was the evolution having of having grown up in a very um, specific world that was, you know, a moneyed, a moneyed world and a world that I had moved beyond for various reasons. Um, and, and the purpose of the essay had been basically to say it doesn't, just because it looks good from the outside, mm. it's not always good on the inside. But in 5,000 words, conveniently, I didn't have to dig too deep, right? Because yeah. yeah. my arc was much, much smaller. To write an entire book on this topic really required me to do some hard digging. Yeah. And I mean, really, you just scratched the surface when, with the story. Yes, and there was a lot I didn't cop to because I didn't need to cop to it because my thesis could be supported without it. But for all happy families, it would have been a, a cheat of a book and, and not, in my opinion, a a decent book had I not really looked hard at all the skeletons in the closet. And it was a long time ago, and it was not a world that I easily copped to in my adult life. The, um, the sort of esoteric life that I had grown up in as a child. But it also was time to get the story out and my editor gave me ultimate flexibility and freedom which I really appreciated even though it made it harder and I have a, uh, a workshop down in Mexico in huh. Toda Santos where I, where I teach memoir in the winter huh. for a month and I uh, always had told my students Perhaps your story is the one that you don't want to look at, the one that you always write around or walk around in your lives. And then I sort of thought, okay, I'm, I'm completely stumped about how to tackle this. Maybe I should take my own advice. And since I hadn't taken my own advice in readily agreeing to take the contract when mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. So... Um, that's what I did, and there was one story in my life that I had never really told anyone, other than, you know, there were people that had been there for it, but it wasn't something that I had repeated. And that story was the situation around my first marriage and my wedding specifically. What happened was I got married quite young. Um, too young, in my opinion, I think, at the age of 25, 
and my father died the weekend of the wedding. He died because he had gone, he had had a seizure, a massive seizure, uh, brought on by an abrupt withdrawal from alcohol after being a very heavy alcoholic for all of my childhood uh, and dating back prior to that. So what, what I had never talked about really or written about was my father's alcoholism and the impact that it had on me and on our family and how it all came to a crescendo over this 36 to 48 hour period in which he had he had a stroke two days before the wedding. I found out about it because my fiance and I were driving from New York. We just packed up our car. I had the wedding dress in the back seat of our jalopy and we left our jobs for two weeks and we were, you know, having this wedding and that we were going on a honeymoon and we stopped about halfway out to my my family had a house in East Hampton in Long Island. We stopped about halfway out to call on the payphone in those days at the gas station and say that we were running late and the housekeeper answered and said, go straight to Southampton Hospital. Your father's had a stroke. So um, my mother, being a very large character in life, and very, she bought into social decorum in a big way, which in retrospect, I let her off the hook a bit because I realized a lot of that was her just trying to place order around chaos, i.e. my father's alcoholism. Yeah. But she, she was adamant that we would go ahead with the wedding. Um, and to her credit, and so it takes me a long time to even come to the point where I would say to her credit about this, um, I think she was so over him ruining family events with his alcoholism that she just thought, no, it's not happening. Yeah. And he was still alive at the time. He was on life support, and we we pretty much knew he wasn't going to make it. Hmm. But a decision had to be made. And my fiancé and I, being young and being completely traumatized, as was everyone else, um, we we went along with it, but not without, at least on my part, and I would say on his part, too, not without a lot of anxiety and uh, turmoil. And that became the basis of all happy families. It starts there. It starts with two very different families. My fiance was from Camden, Maine, small town. Two very different families coming together to one house on the beach for one event that turned into a totally other event mm. over the course of the weekend. And once I once I finally landed on that as a place to start, and once I started to unpack it in terms of the effect of the alcoholism and the effect of my mother on the proceedings 
and everything else that happened. The uh, my fiance's family, who like any family, they were having their own uh, issues at the time. And whenever family all gets together, these things come up. So of course, their family was also reunited for this wedding. So we had two very different families dealing with this crisis. And um, I I took that on as sort of the place that I wanted to start. So and that was the beginning of the arc. So I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of story and a lot of information there, but a lot of you know a lot of what you talk about. And one of the reasons I wanted to to kind of reach out and kind of share this is, I know a lot of people who go through that same experience of having a. a particularly a father, but, but I mean, other family members that are alcoholics and kind of the trauma that imposes on a family. And, you know, the time that it takes for somebody to, to try to deal with it. So from the, so from the time that you were married at 25 and you, you went through this traumatic experience until, Let's say when did when did you start grappling with your father's alcoholism? Was it like forty, fifty? Like at what age did it really kind of hit you? Well, I I think I think it's an ongoing grapple, right? Even yeah. when the person is no longer there, what you're really grappling with is all yeah. of the dimensions and nuances of being the adult child of an alcoholic. You're dealing with it in phases, it. yeah. Sorry? You're dealing with it in phases, yeah. like it comes in waves. Really. Well, you do. Yeah. You do. And and I think that a lot of things inform it. Certainly for me, being a mother informed it. Yeah. Uh, certainly being sober myself informed it. And really understanding the nature of what is a family disease, clearly. Um, and my... my relationship to alcohol was nowhere near as extensive, um, nor was it as much over time as my father's. But when I was in a place of severe trauma um, a number of years back for a very short but very concentrated period of time, I started drinking too much. And I had to come to terms with the fact that it was a disease and that I also had it and that I, even though I was in my mid-50s at that time um, and had always controlled alcohol, I, when the chips were down, that's what happened. I started drinking too much. So I had to realize that the, what the direct line was and through going to AA and from there really understanding um, being a, the, the reality of being an adult child. It was very different once I had that experience. And I think even though that experience is not part of the arc of my book, because it's not in that time period at all, I don't think I could have written anywhere near as informed a book had I not gone through that experience myself. Really because it the, the big work for me was that I had never really understood why I had just gone along with my mother's direction that we needed to go ahead with this wedding, and I never listened to myself. 
And there's actually a part in the book where I say, and it's the, the morning of the wedding, my father is on life support in the hospital, and I say in the book, I woke up that morning and realized I'd lost my voice. And I had lost my voice. I mean, I could speak, but I had no agency whatsoever. Mm. And I ended up going to the guy that was going to perform the ceremony, who was the local minister, even though we had no real relationship to him. And I, I just sort of unloaded on him that morning. And I said, I, I, I don't have a voice. So it took me many, many, many years to understand what that was all about and what that behavior was informed by. Hmm. And through that lens, I was able to really look at the situation in a different way. Was there, in your opinion, was there like a, like a, a genesis for your father, um, becoming alcoholic or like, is it, was it something that you saw in like your grandparents would like his parents, uh, passed on to him? Like, well, uh, I don't know because my father was a much older father. Um, he was born in 1908, my father. Hmm. So we were products of his second marriage and his, I never knew my grandparents and I don't even think that my half-siblings, his older children, they didn't know them either. So it's it's hard to trace the genesis of it. Yeah. I can only see where it has appeared. And I heard once that alcoholism in a family is something that's called the polka dot gene, you know, and, and it dots all over a family, right? You can sort of see over time where the dots, you know, are. And who's got, who's going to be destined to grapple with it? Although it's also true that we all, you know, everybody is, everybody can fall prey to addiction. It's mm-hmm. not just special cases of people who are genetically inclined. We all know that. So I don't know. I just, I know how it's played out over time. And I also know how other people, have been affected by it and I'm including all sorts of you know all sorts of players in the the family drama because family dysfunction everyone is hit by family dysfunction nobody gets out of that I mean you can you can run but you can't hide yeah what um what role do you think wealth or and society play in terms of kind of um, creating an environment where alcoholism is, is acceptable and, and kind of put up with? You know, I don't know that we can um, really pin it on exactly that. I think that would be a gross generalization, in my opinion. Uh, is it... Is it true that, I don't know what the statistics are, that people with wealth are more prone towards alcoholism? I don't think so. Um, I think, again, it's an equal opportunity disease. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it may take 
different. It may have different sorts of edges and angles to it in certain ways, but the impact on family is the same. I mean, maybe there's, if there's a cushion of wealth, the impact is more emotional than it is socioeconomic as well. Sure. Um, or not or not sure, because often what that means is there is no wealth anymore. Uh, and I, I just, I don't think that anyone gets off easy in this kind of situation. Do you, do you find that, like, in your situation with your own family, that you ended up being overly protective of your children to kind of help them avoid the the carnage that kind of you went through growing up? Well, you know, their lives are completely different. If I wanted to make their lives the same as the one that I grew up in, I wouldn't have been able to. I mean, I don't have that money. I don't have that kind of money, thank God. Uh, And that's, that's not their reality. They have distant, distant memories of the house on the beach, the family house on the beach, only because my mother was still alive when they were small. Uh, But that, you know, that time has passed. That was not something I inherited. So thank God. I'm really, you know, maybe it would be nice to have a big pile of money. It probably would in many, many ways. I don't want to be glib about it Well, less less about the money, but I mean more in terms of just being I would say overly protective of like just taking a different outlook than maybe your mom did in terms of how she dealt with you compared to how you dealt with your kids. Uh, yes, I think so. I, and there are, there are small ways, and I think all of us as parents do this in, to one extent or another, you know, there are small ways in which I, it was very important, for example, for me, to tell them every single night before they went to sleep how proud I was of them yeah. because that was something yeah. I never heard. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. Um, and to my mind, one of the big credos in parenting is listen and acknowledge. Whereas I would say my mother's credo to herself was children should be seen and not heard. Mm. Yeah. So that's a big difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I had the, uh, maybe it's generational because like my father, um, and to some extent my mom, like there really wasn't any outward expression of pride or, you know, satisfaction, even though I know that, you know, they were happy that I was successful, but, you know, it's not like it was ever said, um, by contrast, like, with my son and my daughter, I mean, I tell them every time I see them, you know, it's, it becomes yeah, a matter of, exactly. I want them to know, like, because I, I wasn't sure, but I want them to know. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's exactly how I feel. And I don't know if it's generational or if it's societal. I don't know. I, I really don't know, but I do know that it seems of utmost importance to me as a parent and you too. Yeah. From what you're saying. So how did your mom deal with the change after your father passed away? Like she had been kind of keeping this chaos in check for so many years. And then 
he passes away. How does she deal with that change in kind of the situation? Well, you know, I can only tell you from the distance of, you know, I, I obviously no longer lived with her. I was married. Mm-hmm. I had my own apartment. I had a job. So I can only speak from that vantage point. So it was not the direct impact she had on me in her household, and I wasn't a child. But I would say at first, it was probably much more traumatic for her than for any of us, because she had been the one who had uh, insisted that he sober up and had made the decision to do it without a medical detox. Uh, uh. I'm sure deep inside her, she felt responsible. She must have felt somewhat responsible. Yeah. In truth, I don't know in 1983. I mean, now we know you don't do that kind of thing with a very severe alcoholic without medical supervision. You just don't do it. Maybe it wasn't known then. Or maybe she just thought that her uh, system of giving him vitamins and health shakes and you know, exercise, walking around every day was somehow going to solve it. Um, so I think she she was very lonely, very shaken, and very needy. Mm. And what what's difficult in a situation like that, particularly, I can only say from my perspective, I had just gotten married. I had been through a trauma myself. And... I was just trying to put one foot in front of the other and be a married person. And yet at the same time, I realized that she had needs. I mean, she really, she was very needy. So, you know, that's one of these things where you have to make a judgment call all the time is how much of yourself you can give to that and how much of yourself you need to give back to yourself. And your husband because you're starting your own family in your own life. Um, And then she moved, I mean, she, over time, she sort of got back on track with her life, and she ended up uh, meeting a guy, and for the last, I'd say, I don't know exactly how many years, but for any number of years, they actually lived very happily together he was he was a widow or and uh so you know life did go on for her but i would say in the immediate aftermath and probably always a bit she uh you know she really struggled of course Hmm. i mean what words of advice would you have for for somebody who's going through a a similar situation in terms of kind of a, a distressed family, like in this day and age, like what would what would your advice be? Well, I think that families get distressed in so many different ways that to give just a piece of blanket advice to somebody would be disingenuous. Hmm. Um, if, if somebody's struggling with an alcoholic in their family, the advice is get help. Find out what you can do. Find out how you can give this person the gift of sobriety and and then everybody in the family 
should be talking to someone because alcoholism is a family disease, whether you have it yourself or not. Yeah, Brene Brown um, talks about a lot of time uh, things like this are wrapped up in shame and you know, shame is really the only way that it operates is really in darkness and people not communicating. Yeah, and you know, I find it sort of shocking, I guess is the word I'll use, that in this day and age there's still such a stigma about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly, you know, people who have gotten sober and remained sober. When I hear people gossiping, saying, oh, well, you know, he, uh, he, he's, he doesn't drink, he hasn't had a drink in 20 years, blah, blah. What they should be saying is, good on him, that's fucking yeah. awesome, he's got the gift of sobriety. And when I hear all this sort of chit-chat and the attempt to shame somebody, I, in this day and age, it just seems appalling to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's far more widespread than anybody gives it credit for. Not just the the fact of of alcoholism or or abuse, but substance abuse. But the fact that uh, people have experienced some sort of trauma when they were were children. I think a lot of times oh, yeah. um, those types of situations that uh, kind of people experience when they're kids ends up becoming the seed for that um, for that numbing that the addiction gives and it's just yes. you know we we bury that and it, it's it's really the source of a lot of the problems that as a culture we suffer from yes I think that's true absolutely and I mean again there's so many different kinds of trauma yeah, yeah. that um, you know there's there's no way to put an accurate blanket statement over this except to say that it's a gift to be able to recognize the trauma and it, it takes a lot of hard work and courage to do the digging and I think it also takes, I mean maybe some people are like soul operators by S-O-L-E operators, but I find the community is also of utmost importance, which, which is why I'm a big fan of uh, recovery programs. Yeah. But that's, that's just for me. Again, I'm not going to make that as something I think everybody necessarily cottons to. Uh, everybody has to find their own way to identify trauma and identify the triggers in your life because you don't always realize when suddenly you have been triggered that's an excellent point and that sometimes that sometimes is is the tough thing to figure out and and you really my experience because i i have you know i'm in a similar situation is it takes somebody else to point it out you know to say ah that was it and then when you connect the dots it actually helps to diffuse it going forward. Like, once you're able to recognize it, it helps. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. And and you can also sometimes successfully um, redirect whatever it is that you were about to do in reaction 
to whatever had triggered you. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever that behavior is. Uh, for example, if you have always had a shaky home and you don't really feel that home is where it's supposed to be in yourself, um, moving can trigger terrible trauma, re-trigger things. Yeah. And once you say, aha, that's, that's where that's coming from, it helps you to just get through your move and say, this is a place I'm triggered, to be able to say, I'm, the floor is beneath me, the sky is above me, I am walking through a traumatic situation, but I am walking to the other side. I mean, to just be able to say that as sort of a little mantra, but first you have to recognize that you're being triggered, as you point out. Yes, yes, no doubt. Um, so, All Happy Families was released in June as a uh, paperback, right? Yes, yes. All Happy Families came out in hardcover last August, and it was released in June as a paperback. And it's available um, online through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places. It can also be ordered through my website, and my website is my me- my name, uh, Jeanne McCulloch. Dot com, but I should say that Jeanne is just the French word for Jean, so it's J-E-A-N-N-E-M-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H dot com. I'll be sure to and include it in the, uh, in the uh, description for the uh, podcast. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If somebody wants to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me right through my website. Okay. Contact area there and I'd love to hear from everyone. Awesome. That would be great. And I've got essays up there in my blog and my events that are upcoming too and my workshops if people want to study with me. Are you planning on writing another book or is that kind of a one and done kind of yeah, project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm working on another book now that's actually not going to be about me. <laughs> ah. So is it fiction or? No, it's non-fiction. But okay. I don't want to say any more right now because ah. it's in its early stages. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat today. and um, Absolutely. My pleasure. As your uh, next book comes out, I look forward to, to catching up again, okay? Sure. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Great Thanks a lot, Jen. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, bye.